0: And we welcome you into the spotlight on this Tuesday. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Drew Brent. And if you're in the market to buy or sell your home, give us a call today. It's 479 968 5668 or you can cruise right on over to russellvilleliving.com. One of our agents right here at Alathus Realty is ready, willing, and able to serve you. Give us a call today. The market's never been better. It's 479 968 5668 Proud to bring you the spotlight. Proud to bring you our guest at this time, making her second appearance on the show, Miss Bethany Bratton. Hello, Miss Bethany. Welcome back.
1: Hello. I feel so fancy when you say second appearance. That makes it's, me so important.
0: Okay, well, you know, I, I've, I've made this uh, comment before. Danielle Hausnick was on the show uh, revealing Downtown at Sundown lineups a couple of weeks back. Okay. It was her ninth appearance on the show. Wow. So she brought a tiara with uh, the number nine on it. So the next time you come in... I'm going
1: to have to find something with the number three for the next time. Right.
0: You know, now it's become a conversation of like, well, the people who make multiple appearances, they're trying to decide what it is that they're going to bring, you know, fancy hats or jackets. And she's going to be on for a tenth time in the next month or so. And then I think I have to buy her like a watch or something. I think she needs a
1: cake at least.
0: A a cake... You know, she's probably down for a cake. I'm down for a cake. We'll do that. Um,
1: we're always down for cake. Oh, <laughs> always.
0: You know, what else you're down for is volunteers over where you're at, over at CASA. Of course, yes. you represent the CASA 5th Judicial District. And um, what you do over there is so, so important. We talked about this in the first time that you were here, but let's refresh people. What is it that you do? Why is it important?
1: So CASA of the 5th Judicial District, what we actually do is that we train community members to, and I'm sorry, I talk with my hands, train community members to...
0: The shot's wide, you're good. Okay, okay so... <laughs> yeah, you're fine. <laughs> so, uh, we train
1: community members to actually work with foster children, and then they work directly with foster children. So, they get trained to go in, they, they take a case, they get to pick their case, and they go in and actually work hands-on, meet these kids, make sure that they're safe, make sure their needs are being met, um, so that, because when they're in the system, sometimes things, they get sticky, sometimes things get lost in the system. Um, they move placements often. Things like that happen. So we want to make sure that their needs are being met. And we express their wishes to the court. We we look for their best interest um, and kind of help in that way. And it takes just community volunteers to do that.
0: When you've got um, somebody who wants to be a volunteer, obviously, mm-hmm. I would imagine that there's a pretty thorough screening process before you can get through that. Um, talk a little bit about what that entails, but why it's worth it.
1: So what... The first thing you'll do is put in an application. So, um, and it's on our website, arcosta 5org the number 5 arcosta ARCASA5.org. Um, and then I get those and I turn around and I call you or I text you to say, hey, glad you put in your application. Right. Let's talk. Um, at that point, we schedule an interview to sit together and really answer all of your questions. Uh, people have questions. Uh, they, they run the gamut. There's like a lot of frequently asked questions <laughs> that we go through, but um, We sit and we just talk. We talk about what CASA is, what you'll be doing, what this really looks like. Make sure you're comfortable with that before we ever even progress. Um, We're going to run background checks. uh, And then you go through a five-week training program uh, as well, which is like one night a week. We go through this training program and and really kind of equip you to be able to step into that and understand the mindset of foster children, kind of what they're going through uh, and what to expect.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that mindset of foster children. Um, Something that's not really brought up a lot. Um, We mentioned this on the first interview, and I will never not mention this when we talk. Okay, Um, The stigma that surrounds foster children is... Horrible and it's horribly unfair. A lot of times there are these conversations with people that say, Well, you know, I don't really wanna I don't really wanna foster because these kids have gone through so much and there's probably behavioral issues and there's this and there's that. The truth of the matter is that's not always the case, is it? Mm,
1: No, it's really not. I mean you're going to have probably some uh you know, if you think about right now, if I came into your home and I removed you from everything you know and everybody you know and I stuck you in some other home or some facility somewhere and said exist. You, you, there's going to be some pushback. I mean, you're, you're going to get that, right? And so that, that's what's happening, essentially, to these foster kids. And then we're talking kids from, you, you know, infant born from a hospital all the way up until they're 21 that they're in foster care. So you, you can expect a little pushback sometimes, but I don't think that's the overall mindset of the foster children. They're just trying to navigate their way. And a lot of times what's happening in the court systems, what's happening with their parents, they just don't understand. No one's explaining it to them.
0: Uh, you said 21. Yes, I don't know that most people know that. I, I, that took me by surprise, and we've talked before. Yes, you can be in foster care up till twenty one. Up
1: till twenty one. At eighteen, foster children have the choice to stay in care or to leave. Um, there's there's benefits to them if they stay in care. They uh, have to work at least twenty hours or be enrolled in school. Um, and they can actually still get uh, a monthly stipend to kind of help them live. And I don't want to speak too much and, and misquote exactly what it is because I'm not the teen specialist that runs with them. Sure. But I know that there's some financial assistance that can help them with some apartments and things. Um, we've even had some special programs. Um, like there's one, one of our favorite ones is Get Real 24 up in Fort Smith. And they are literally a whole program designed with um, teens aging out of foster care. So they're 18 and they're still kind of under DHS and they're still part of that program but they get the counseling and they just get the support to get their driver's license, to get all those things that they need to function as adults.
0: I'm not sure people really know that those programs are available for people. Yes. And the reason why I don't think that they know that is for one, it's really not a it's really not a fun topic to look at. No, it's not. But two, also there's kind of this expectation of Hey, once you're 18, you're 18, go forth and live. <laughs> but for these foster kids, a lot of times if they've grown up in the system, they've not had a consistent influence to teach them how to do that. You have they?
1: Are absolutely correct, which is one of the things that CASAs step in to do, um, especially with our teens. I mean, we, we have CASAs that work with our, our, we'll call them the littles. They work with our littles and they do amazing work through them. We have um, CASAs who like to work with the teens. And so sometimes with that, you're teaching them life skills. Um, think about who taught you to change a tire, who taught you to, to do a banking, who taught you how to fill out a job application, you know, who who worked with you on that
0: how stuff. How to tie a tie.
1: It, it, it's yeah. parents, right, yeah. usually, and they don't have that. So the CASAs kind of step into that role to help them learn some life skills in those areas and, and kind of be that, I don't want to say mentor because you're a CASA, but it's almost like you're kind of mentoring them into adulthood in, in some ways. And that's a an that aspect when you're working with teens, it's very different than with littles. Because you're going to teach them some of those things or work with them through those things.
0: How big is the need for CASA volunteers in this area right now?
1: I'm going to tell you, we cover Pope, Johnson, and Franklin County. So we cover three counties. And right now, for the first time in a long time, we have almost 20. I believe it's just hit 20 kids that do not have a CASA. And last year, in in the year of 2021, we served 191 kids. 191. That's a huge number of kids in foster care. Um, some of those kids are still in care. Some of those kids got to go home. Some of them are adopted. Some of them just aged out, and their cases closed. But right now, we probably have more kids that I've than I've than I've ever seen without causes.
0: And what does that mean for those kids? I mean, when when you say, "Hey, these are kids that don't have causes," does that mean they don't necessarily have an advocate? What What does that mean for them?
1: That's true. They don't have an advocate. They don't have someone. You know, and I don't want to say holding their hand through foster care, but that's what we do. Caseworkers are phenomenal and way overworked, but they are phenomenal. But the caseworkers from DHS are way overworked. They're trying to juggle, you know, sometimes 20, 30 cases with multiple children on each case. Whereas when a CASA gets trained, they go in and they take one case. And it may have one, two, three kids on it, but they take one case. And they really focus in on that one case. And we do work with DHS and we work with the court system. We work with all that to figure out what are the needs for this child. What would be in their best interest? And the CASA is the only thing constant for these kids. So when a CASA takes a case, we ask that you stay with the case until it closes. On average, it's about a year, year and a half, sometimes two, depending on the case. Um, but they stay constant with the child. They, you know, help the child understand what's happening with the court system, what's going on. Let's let's look at behaviors. Let's look at what your life goal are. You know, again, depending on the age of the child, it's very different what you do. But it's the only Consistent thing they
0: have. Uh, you mentioned DHS a few minutes ago. Yes. I want to touch on that uh, a second um, because when you talk about stigma, there's another one out there. You know, <laughs> yeah. and that and that one, that one's the easy one. Well, DHS isn't going to do anything. DHS is this. DHS is that. You just said a few minutes ago. A lot of these caseworkers have twenty or thirty cases at yes. at a time. So that must mean two things. This is just my deductive reasoning, Sherlock Holmes style.
1: Oh, look at you. Um,
0: if that means that these workers have 20 to 30 kids, then one of two things or both things are happening. We don't have enough DHS workers or we have a bunch of foster kids that we, that we maybe didn't anticipate having as many of those kids or both.
1: It could be any of those. I can't speak to the structure of DHS. I've never actually worked for them. Um, work from the CASA side point, but I I think it's pretty well known everywhere that they are overworked, that they, they can be, you know, they, they care. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, the caseworkers, they really do care about these kids. They care about kids being in abuse and situations like that. And they want to help them. And they are, they are stretched thin and doing everything they can do. Um, we develop a wonderful relationship with our DHS in, in all three of our counties. And, you know, they can talk to us. We talk to them when we go out because we lay eyes on the children more than they do because we're able to. And so as a CASA, you go out and you see your child and you see something's going on. Then you go back to the caseworker and say, hey, I noticed this today when I was visiting the child. Is there any way we can get this done? And the caseworker's like on it. And they can send an email and handle the problem. You know, I mean, it we work together very well.
0: Uh, when when a caseworker is on the case, so so to speak, the, the the CASA worker is there. What are they typically looking for? Are they just trying to make sure that all the needs are met? Are they looking for red flags? What what is it that they're looking for?
1: I'm going to say all of the above. But let's let's say we have a a CASA worker who's gone out and they're going to see the child that just got moved to a new placement. Okay, so the CASA worker goes in and or volunteer works with mm-hmm. uh, the school district to make sure that all of the plans, everything from the last school district, got transferred. Um, if they have 504 plans or individual education plans, any of that kind of stuff, we want to make sure that those got transferred, so that nothing got lost in transition. We want to make sure that um, the counseling gets set up. We want to talk to them, make sure they have an avenue for counseling to get set up. Um, you know, I have my own personal experience as a former foster parent. I took my child in to go start counseling, and the first thing they did was change medication. So one of the things that we encourage our causes to do is just kind of keep a log, a medical log, so you kind of know hey, this is what the child's been on, hadn't been on, this is what happened. Um, and it's not necessarily, you know, but we do have access to their medical records with our court order, but it, it's just kind of making sure that we can maintain if the child's doing really well, um, tips and tricks maybe that former teachers used, if they're in a new placement and they have a new school, you know, and let's say the child has has an issue at two o'clock every day, you know, and it, it, the eight-year-old child has an issue at two o'clock every day. And this teacher found out if I give them a puppet toy, is that there are a squeeze ball in their hand. They can focus on their math assignment at 2 o'clock in the day, where it took her a little bit to figure that out, right? So there's no reason we have to reinvent the wheel. The Costa will already know that from visiting with the teachers and stuff. So when they go to this new school and they go in and talk to the teachers and the teachers are like, well, they started to have behavior problems at 2 o'clock. Okay, give them a squeeze ball. You give them a squeeze ball, watch what happens, right? We don't have to reinvent that. We don't have to put the child back through all of that again.
0: Uh, one thing that I want to see if we can delve into. Okay. And it may be difficult to do. <coughs> Excuse me. You are a you were a foster parent at one point. I was. Point. Yes. Um can you take us at least as much as you can into the mind of uh your typical foster child? Ooh, and and the reas- the reason I say that is because I can't imagine being uprooted from even if it's a horrible situation. Right. You That's all you know. Mm -hmm. And horrible may be comfortable. Right. And you get moved from that to another place. You've got to be scared. You've got a parent, a foster parent, who's trying to love you and is trying to be good to you. There's obviously some pushback. Uh, What are they thinking when this happens?
1: Uh, I think you hit it on the head when you said fear. So one of the things that that I teach when we do the training is I, I put it to you this way. So... You go outside your house right now, or let's say you step outside of a Olathe's Realty, this beautiful building, and you go outside and you step out, and there's a copperhead right there, and you almost step on it, right? So what your body's going to do at that moment is go into your heart rate's going to increase. Your blood pressure's going to go up. You're going to have a little oh, bit of shortness of breath. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Really quickly, shortness of breath. You're going to kind of go, and what your body is doing is going into fight-or-flight mode is trying to decide, am I going to run from this snake or are we going to have to kill this snake, right? You're trying to figure something out right there at that moment. That's fight or flight mode. These children who are going in day in and day out to abusive homes, to you know um, maybe where they're getting physically abused, where they don't have food, where they have to go hide if people come over, things like that. They are living in fight or flight mode. So you think taking them out of that situation, that that would just magically fix everything. But what we've done is we put them in another situation where they're scared, they don't know anybody, that you know they're kind of in that. When a door slams, they don't know what it means, right? Right. So we're we're kind of that transition happens that way. So the kid basically, the child is staying in fight or flight mode. So their their rationale, their thinking, their decision making, it's very very short sighted, uh, because you're trying to just handle that moment in that situation. And it actually, and that's called trauma. That gives them trauma brain is what that's called, Um, and it rewires their brain into a constant state of trauma. And so that's kind of what they're going through. So having to make long-term decisions for these, you know, smaller kids, older kids, all that kind of stuff, that's hard. It can be retaught to them. It takes a long time to do that. So, but that that truly trauma brain is what's happening with most of these kids.
0: You hit on trauma brain. I think yes. we, need to, we need to touch on that just a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I learned recently after reading a study that when, when any person goes through any kind of trauma, yes. that... Uh, Your brain, your neural pathways, and even in some cases, your DNA is quite literally rewritten. So to uh, try to adapt to what it is Mm -hmm. that your surroundings have created. And what that does is it creates a physical response if you are put Mm -hmm. into a similar situation or anything that would elicit that reaction again. Right. These kids, while they may be in a safer environment... Yes. Your physical response to the unknown, your physical response to a loud noise, your physical response to an unknown situation looks like misbehavior. Yes. When really that's the only thing they know how to do. Right. Okay. Case in point. Let's
1: say that there's an eight-year-old going down a hallway at school. Shoelaces are untied, carrying a bunch of books in their, in their arms. The other kid walks by, steps on his shoelaces. Kid falls flat on the ground, drops his stuff, turns around, jumps up, punches the other kid. Okay, so is that a bad behavior or is that a trauma response? See, if you don't know the child and you don't know the history of the child, you're just gonna assume that's just a bad behavior, that's just a bad kid. When you go and you look at this child and say this child was physically beaten by their father all the time and so all they wanna do is protect themselves, so now they've had an injury or they felt attacked, they're trying to defend themselves. That's a trauma response. That's not a bad kid, that's a trauma response.
0: Uh, how important is it for CASA volunteers to understand a lot of the psychology behind this?
1: It's super important. I, I think just like anybody else, um, you know, you you come into this thinking, well, I want to help kids. And you have to understand they they need the help. They need the help so much. They need something constant. They need somebody to talk to. But you also have to understand that they're going to have a few issues in this direction. They're, they're going to have some possible behavior issues sometimes. You're going to see some reactions that you don't even understand. Um, I love teaching the trainings because I think people even a lot of our our volunteers we just finished a class and and I have the best it was six of them that came through this class and they were hilarious and I loved them to pieces and they're starting on cases in this next week but they um, even going through that we um, they identified some own traumas that had happened in their lives and we went through this process explaining it they're like this makes so much sense. It's like, it, you know, light bulb. You see light bulbs go off when you start understanding, oh, this is why I do this. This is why I do this. But it helps you understand why the kids are doing this. And you can even help explain this to the kids. And you start teaching them different ways to react to that. And I mean, costs, they're just, costs matter so much to these kids. So much.
0: Let me use a personal example. And I want you to to, to kick up some dust on this. Okay. Because where I grew up, um, If you said the words trauma response, you're going to get a reaction of "Oh, that's not, that's not real, that's not real." You're being, you're being ridiculous. You're being dramatic. Yes, dramatic. That's the one I like. Yeah, you're being dramatic. That's ridiculous. That kind of thing doesn't happen. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Dust yourself off and get that. Yeah. That's that macho Boys machismo don't cry.
1: Yeah.
0: crud that I absolutely can't stand really and truly, that can be harmful for people, especially kids of trauma, can it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I don't know how much more dust I can kick on that because that, it can be. It's not like, you know, suck it up and get over it. When, you know, kids have seen what they've seen, when they've been through what they've been through, um, being honest with them matters, being truthful with them, talking to them about their thought processes, what they've gone through. Um, you know, that just use that little eight-year-old boy example. If you sat down with an eight-year-old boy, it's already happened. He doesn't need to be chewed out for that. He's already had his punishment. All that's happened. So as a CASA, I come in there and I can sit with him and be like, wow, so what happened? You know, and help him understand why he responded that way. But, I mean, I'm not a psychologist by any stretch of the imagination. Don't hold any kind of degrees in that world or anything. But I can sit here and talk to this child and say, okay, so what would have been a better response? So next time this happens, what do you think we could do different? And it's just that kind of very simple, break it down, let's talk through it. And maybe the next time it helps, maybe he does it again. It doesn't matter, but it's that consistency of going back in and talking about those things.
0: I think there's probably a lot of people, too, that think, well, you know, this doesn't happen here. This (laughs) is not, this is not, Sorry. I wish I'd have had you on the two-shot ah, there. Sorry. Right? It's just, it's just, <laughs> I'm sorry. laughed out loud to my question. Let's sorry. go back to that. Um, I think, but there, I, I truly do believe that there are people I, out there I who think, you're right. you know, this is kind of a faraway problem. This is not no. something that really happens here. That kind of abuse, sure, it probably happens in the, that probably happens in those neighborhoods. Right. You know, and you use those neighborhoods, whichever, whatever that may be, it happens everywhere,
1: uh, yes, sir. It happens everywhere. It happens with every uh, demographic that you want to lay out there, whether it be racial, whether it be financial, whether it, you know, I, mean, I don't care what demographic you lay out there. Um, we, we did a, I did a, a post that, or not a post, I'm sorry. In my training, I talk about the demographics and the disproportionality of our community and all that kind of stuff. And if you look at the demo, let's say, let's take the demographic of Pope Johnson in Franklin County, predominantly racially, we're a white community, right? There, there are other racial groups in there and they make up. And so, you know, African-American, Hispanic, I mean, they're all in there. And if you look at the kids in foster care, predominantly they are Caucasian, you know, from all different backgrounds, from all different things. And then, again, it, it follows exactly. Uh, we, we match the demographic of our community as far as the the age, not the ages, as far as the, um, the racial profiling of what we have.
0: What about socioeconomic, though? I mean, I, I still think in every range. Really? Yeah. So this is not this is not a pro- let's let's break that rumor right now. This is not limited to no. people who are in a lower socioeconomic class.
1: No, you're you're gonna see. Um, I say you see. We see cases from every demographic that you can. So, I mean, just knock that out the window. It happens. Abuse happens, whether it's sexual, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's environmental neglect, whether it's any of those things. Abuse. It, there's not. A label you can put on it. There's domestic violence in every category, you know, which again, bleeds down into the children. There's, uh, you can't put a label on it like that.
0: We're talking to Bethany Bratton, CASA 5th Judicial District. By the way, the website is?
1: ARCASA5.org, the
0: number five. You are, you've been doing this for how long?
1: I've been doing this for three years.
0: Okay. Here's Not, the,
1: now, at CASA. At CASA.
0: <laughs> now, here's the question. Why? Why?
1: Because it matters. I'll tell you, I'm gonna take it back. So I adopted um, well when I was a foster parent, we had a 13 year old that came to live with us. His name was Zach. Um, and we wound up adopting him later, but he had a Casa, and that was my first exposure to Casa. Uh, his casa was a man named Mike Cope. Many of you may know him in our community because he's he volunteers in a lot of different ways in our community. He's still a Casa. Um, he was my introduction to Casa, and I asked Zach at one point we were I remember we were driving down the interstate to go see my parents. And I said, Zach, what, what was Mike to you? You know, we'd already adopted at this point, still didn't kind of have a full grasp of what CASA did, but I asked him, said, what was it? This response changed my life. He said, Mom, he was the only thing constant in my five years of foster care. He went through countless caseworkers, countless foster homes. He, he said there was always a Mr. Mike, though. Always. I mean, for a child that has nothing else, to be taken away from siblings he, he went with his siblings he wasn't with his um bio parents her rights have been terminated i mean here's just a kid that's just lost and he's just in this system with nobody to hold on to and to latch on to all the time to tell me that the only thing he had constant was his casa that mattered to me
0: i i think it's important too you touched on something that i should have touched on earlier but i i i, I neglected to when these kids go into foster care, a lot of times they've already been victims of, well, they have been victims of trauma, but something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough is the fact that the system in and of itself, despite the fact that it's designed with good intentions is also a trauma mainly because you don't know anybody. You are put in this position that is, that is, you know, unbelievable. And you're separated from everything that you know. Absolutely. Here's one trauma. And to fix this trauma, here's the second one. Right.
1: And, and the the sense of loss of control, I think, is probably the one that's hardest to grasp because we all, we all love to have control. <laughs> we have control over what? your... I know, I know. <laughs> See, I mean, you don't think about that, but everybody likes to have that sense of control. Um, even the kids, I mean, think about, you know, your daughter or kids when they're in your home or something. You know, my kids want to feel like they're in control. They want to have control over their toys. They want to mm-hmm. have control... You know, you feel like you want to have... Sometimes my daughter
0: good. is in control. See, uh, my, <laughs> kids, my kids run
1: the show half the time. Right. So... But these kids have zero control over most aspects of their life at this point. They get picked up and told, you're going to move here. Um, foster parents have something happen and they have to close their home or something go on and the kids are just picked up and moved. Together. They don't give a choice in that. And, you know, guess what? You're starting a new school. I don't want to start a new school. I love this school. Sorry, tough. You're moving across the state. You're going to a different school. I mean, there, there's that sense of control is, is gone and that's it's almost... It, just, it, it causes more layers of, of trauma on them to the point that sometimes they get to the point where they just don't care anymore and they don't want to try. But if we can give them that one constant person that is going to call them, that's going to check in with them, that's going to just show up at least one time a month, if not more. Most of our classes visit more than one time, but we require at least one. Um, and they, they feel like they have this connection point that doesn't change. No. That impacts their life.
0: Let's talk briefly, we've only got a few minutes left here on the show, sure. talking to Bethany Bratton, uh, CASA 5th Judicial District, CASAAR5.com? Yes. All right, and that's the number five, by the way. Let's hear some success stories. Oh, I it mean, was you know, dot org. I'm sorry, dot org. Dot com. sorry, I said.com. I had <laughs> it close. A, I was like,
1: yeah, yeah, was, yeah that's right. Like, Wait, no, it's not, No, sorry. no,
0: you're wrong on that, I shouldn't have told you, it's fine. Um, let's hear some success stories. You know, we've talked a lot about the negativity here. Oh, yeah. Um, but the fact that this organization exists... Has really resulted in some great things that have happened for some kids. Yes. Let's talk about some success stories. Obviously, we're not naming names, but we can't let's, name names. Right, but let's talk some success stories. Here. So,
1: uh, I got to sit in the courtroom a couple weeks ago, and there is a case that's been going on for about two years. Um, the The casa that's been on it is a phenomenal casa. I love her, and I got to sit in the courtroom the other day and watch this mom who has battled Sierra Casas work a little bit with the bio parents I'm sorry I'm not going to run over your time I'm going to try real hard they they, work with, they work with the bio parents as far as uh, making sure they understand what the court's asking them make sure that you know that they know how to get the resources they need things like that um, so this Casa has worked with this bio mom for you know the length of this case she's had some fallbacks she's had some struggles um, but but she's persevered, and so not only has this casa been very consistent for the the young lady that was on this case, she's not a teenager yet, but she's like that that teenage um, She was there to kind of support the mom as far as encouragement and and helping the mom understand what she needed to do. And I got to sit in the courtroom the other day and watch the mom and daughter get reunified. And oh, those reunification stories are. Man, to think how much struggle these parents have gone through, whether it's addictions, whether it's, you know, whatever. And uh, they're overcoming them and they're proving themselves to the court and they get to have their family put back together. That is, that's phenomenal.
0: When you get in the car after that's all done, do you have that moment where you sit and you just kind of...
1: (sighs) I have it in the courtroom.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I said there I just like
0: <laughs> right. You know, we're
1: supposed to keep the poker face when you're in the courtroom and try not to show too much emotion, but I mean, at, at most of the time, but especially at that one, I mean, the whole courtroom just was applauding that mom. Everybody in the room was applauding that mom and on how much she worked and the progress she'd made and uh, getting to put this family cuz that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to try to put these families give the parents time to heal or to go through therapies or whatever they need so that the family can come back together. That doesn't always happen, but that's what foster care is designed to do. Give the kids somewhere safe to go so the parents can get their lives back together. And then we can put the family back together.
0: Bethany real quick. You obviously need volunteers. There's a whole lot of kids who are needing CASAs right now. Tell the folks out there, how can they help?
1: Apply Apply to become a CASA um, again, ARCASA5.org. You can fill out the apply now. I'm going to be the one that calls you or texts you back from that. Um, we have training classes coming up on Saturdays. There's going to be four Saturdays in April. It starts April 9th, it's from 9 to 3. Um, so it won't mess with your work schedule. You get to come hang out with me, and it'll be everybody's favorite day, right? So. <laughs> It's fun, so um, you know I'm pretty much like this all the time. Right. So, uh, but you come and we work from nine to three. It's it's four Saturdays. That's the next one coming up. It's in April. So I encourage you to apply. Ask me questions. I am not going to push anybody into doing this. I want your questions answered because you want to make sure that when you're stepping into this child's life, that you're not somebody that's going to step in and step out. So we're going to talk through everything. I'm going to answer your questions. Um, ask you a few of my own, and we're going to go. We're going to go through all that.
0: Bethany Bratton you are the you're the best thank you are 100 you. <laughs> you are absolutely the best it's casaar ar5.org and if yep. you want to be a volunteer you have a facebook page
1: we do casa of the fifth judicial district okay. and so
0: we're on there okay check them out on social media as well as always thank you so much find something with the number three on it for next time
1: i'm gonna find it i'm gonna do it
0: all right Thanks so much, Bethany Bratton, and thank you for joining us today on The Spotlight. Remember, if you are in the market to buy or sell your home, give us a call today. 479-968-5668 is the number to call. That's it for this Tuesday. We'll see you right back here tomorrow.